This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I am obviously not a cradle Catholic. I was not even raised Christian or really any kind of religious believer. If anything, I was probably raised to be a religious relativist. And it was actually studying philosophy here at Indiana University that convinced me that this religious relativism was basically an untenable life posture. So when I first set foot on IU's campus in the fall of 1996, which is a, a while ago now, I was an avowed atheist and I was also an aspiring writer. Uh, but I was also enrolled in a philosophy class my first semester, and that proved, uh, although I didn't know it at the time, but that proved to set the course for the rest of my life. Um, for it was really my discovery of philosophy that first made me realize that I had a kind of restless heart for the truth, this kind of unchecked desire to want to understand the world and to want to understand myself. And not in a kind of piecemeal, haphazard sort of way, but in a holistic and well-ordered sort of way in which all the pieces of the puzzle would actually fit into a coherent whole. I basically wanted to know whether the stories that I had been told about myself, about my country, about the human person were true, right? And after about a full year and a half of studying, I basically lived in the library I finally approached a priest here at St. Paul's. I'd been doing a lot of reading in philosophy and theology. In particular, I had been reading Augustine and Aquinas fairly heavily, pretty much on my own, alongside with many fathers of the early church. So all of this in addition, of course, to the canonical uh, figures in the philosophical tradition in the West, which is what I would have actually been reading in my courses. I told the priest I met here that I thought I ought to become a Catholic. And when he asked me why, I told him it was because I had come to believe that God exists and that no other picture of the human person that I had encountered besides the Catholic one had struck me as even remotely true. The Catholic Christian vision of man as created in the image and likeness of God, but also suffering some kind of original catastrophe and therefore prone to committing sin and being guilty of sin and in need of penance and redemption and grace, that I thought was probably true. And I thought this because I knew that I was an absolutely broken and gravely wounded person and I had the dim awareness that I could not possibly heal or fix myself. This was the modicum of self-knowledge that I needed to approach this church and humility and to ask for baptism. So the questions that I had when I was 18, when I was 19, they were the sort of existential questions. And not accidentally, my first philosophy class was an introduction to existentialism. But these are questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Does my life, and especially does my death, have any meaning? What is my place in the cosmos? Perhaps you think you already have the answers to these questions, perhaps through the gift of faith. Even so, insofar as you think you have the answers, you think you know things that are true. 
So what I want to talk to you about tonight is to spell out what this might mean. What does it mean to think that something is true? So I want to talk about what truth is. I want to talk about why various postures of untruth are untenable and why it matters for all of us, but probably why it matters most especially for students and why we cannot settle for an easy and equitable denial of the truth. So first, what is truth, right? Truth is defined in relation to the power of the intellect, right? It both defines and measures acts of intellect. St. Thomas Aquinas says that truth is the good of the intellect, and by that he means that any intellectual act, so judging, perceiving, understanding, etc., any intellectual act is the sort of act that essentially aims at truth. So it's gonna be a good act if it hits at the truth and it's gonna be a bad one if it misses it. That's the target or the goal of an intellectual capacity. Now the intellect, or maybe we might call it the capacity for knowledge or understanding, it relates one to being by way of truth, right? So you can think of a judgment or a belief an ordinary judgment or an ordinary belief, and it's a good judgment or a good belief if it's true, um, and it's a bad judgment or a bad belief if it's false. But what it is for it to be true is for it to relate the person, the judger or the believer, to reality in a particular way. For instance, to know that the city of Bloomington is in the state of Indiana is to be related to reality, right? It is, as Aquinas says, an adequatio between the intellect and things, right? So for any proposition to believe, any proposition P is just to take that proposition to be true. And likewise, to assert a proposition, to say it to another person, is to say that this is the way you take things to be in reality, the way you think things are. So we might say that belief is transparent to the truth. And that just means that from the first person perspective, you treat the question of your belief about P, whatever P is, as just basically equivalent or transparent to the question of the truth of P. So if you're wondering whether to believe P, you're just wondering whether P is true. And this means that if you're deliberating about whether or not you want to believe that P, you are deliberating about whether it is the case that the world is the way that P, this proposition, says that it is. So the activity of theoretical deliberation is unintelligible without reference to the truth, right? Deliberation is a kind of search, or it's an inquiry, an inquiry into what? The way things really are right? The way that things are independently of the search or the searcher. So you're, you're, as it were, going out of yourself and asking the way that the world really is. So to see how close the connection is between belief and truth and reality, consider the following scenario. Imagine somebody sees that it's raining, and then they can join this in their mind with the thought that they don't believe. That it's raining. This doesn't really seem possible. 
And for this reason, a famous philosopher, Ludwig Wittgenstein, argues that if there were a verb meaning to believe falsely, it would not have any significant first-person present indicative. That is to say, there would be no role in a human language for people to say, I believe X falsely. And the reason for this is that to believe something is just to have settled the question for oneself about the way things are, right? So again, if you perceive that it's raining, you've just settled the question. <laughs> uh, and there's no further question about whether or not you believe it. Now, of course, your beliefs may be wrong, right? Um, but to believe something is to make a claim that can, in principle, be correct or incorrect as a belief. And the measure here, and there has to be a measure, is truth. And that measure is tied to being. So from the first-person perspective, the commitment to something beyond your own individual psychological perspective is basically unavoidable. It's necessary. Because to believe and to judge is necessarily to transcend your first personal perspective. It is to put yourself in relation to things and to be held accountable to them. So we are truth seekers insofar as we are creatures who have a capacity for intellect, capacity to perceive and to judge and to make inferences, etc. And that just means we are truth seekers. And this is not by choice. This is by nature. You are like this whether you want to be or not. In a stunning exchange in John's gospel, Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate to be charged with a crime. Jesus says to Pilate, the reason I was born and came into the world is to witness to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pontius Pilate turns and asks him in response, what is truth? This is the question Pilate asks him just before he knowingly condemns him, an innocent man, to death in order to appease those under his rule. In this scene, Pilate ignores the truth. He downplays and diminishes it because it is inconvenient for him. And this is something that we can do. But Pilate's question, what is truth, is a perennial question, and it's a personal question for all of us. It has not, and it will never go away. The question of truth is one we will inescapably confront again and again, precisely because as rational animals, creatures with rational capacities of intellect and will, who make judgments, assertions, and choices, we cannot avoid seeking what is true. The truth is inescapable for us because even if we try to say that there is no objective truth, as many now try to say, we are thereby trying to say something true, something that we think demands the rational assent of other people. This reality about us that we have to seek out and must conform ourselves to the truth in every sphere of human life is what all forms of relativism, which is the denial of objective truth and the affirmation that truth talk does not pick out the way things really are. This is what all relativists attempt to deny. Um, and like I said at the beginning of my talk, 
Um, basically, when I came here, I was something of a relativist, at least with respect to religious truth, um, but also probably with respect to moral truths as well. So what I want to do is talk about relativism uh, a little bit, um, kind of go through the different forms of relativism, show why they're incoherent and untenable. But I want to begin with a homily of um, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. So in his homily to mark the beginning of the conclave that would eventually elect him pope, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger warned of a looming specter on the horizon, what he called a dictatorship of relativism. And here's what he said to his fellow cardinals. Letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modernity. But we are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's own ego and desires. Now, the question that I want to pose is why would Ratzinger call relativism a dictatorship? If relativism is the idea that there is no absolute or objective truth such that all opinions are basically on a par with one another, that sounds pretty democratic and tolerant. The exact opposite, you might think, of a dictatorship. And moreover, in a liberal democratic society such as ours, which takes its citizens to be free and equal qua citizens, and which needs to maintain neutrality about metaphysics and any kind of substantive vision of the good life, each one of us in such a society is supposed to have the equal right to determine the future course of things and to fashion your own beautiful autonomous conception of how to live in accordance with which you can act. Isn't relativism the only foundation for a truly liberal order? Isn't anything more than this actually a violation of liberal neutrality and therefore bad? One might wonder then, doesn't Ratzinger have it backwards when he claims that the relativist is the ego-driven tyrant? Isn't the real egoist and oppressor the one who claims to possess the truth? Isn't the claim to possess the truth a claim to possess power over other people, nothing more and nothing less? Isn't the appeal to objective truth intrinsically hierarchical and undemocratic, a potential threat to individual liberty, autonomy, personal authenticity, things that a liberal democracy holds sacred? Isn't it a better vision for society to encourage everyone to speak their own truth, as Oprah likes to say, and to live according to their own authentic vision of life, so long, of course, as this doesn't hurt anyone else. And what follows, I want to suggest that Ratzinger was correct, actually, to note that relativism is properly the theory and the posture of a despot, the intolerant and authoritarian dictator, and that a truly liberal democratic order one that preserves freedom and equality amongst its citizens, will necessarily depend upon mutual recognition of and respect for objective truth. 
most especially objective truth about the nature of we human beings. Relativism, I think, is a genuine threat to freedom. And we ought, as Ratzinger cautioned, always to be on guard against it. Okay, so how, how am I going to argue for this? Well, I just want to go through a variety of kinds of, you know, a garden variety sort of uh, tour through forms of relativism, uh, especially that you might encounter on campus. And uh, I'll just kind of show how I don't think that they work um, or they do something that uh, they don't want to do. And so they're self-defeating. And then I want to conclude uh, by showing that Ratzinger was right and then end with a few more reflections about why truth matters. Okay, so varieties of relativism. So I'm going to begin with what I think is sort of the most vulgar sort of relativism that you might encounter. This is the sort of thing that well-meaning people sometimes say but I think never really believe. This is the sort of relativism that is often attributed to the sophist Protagoras. Uh, Protagoras is a character that we know about because he shows up in several of Plato's dialogues. And let's call this sort of crude relativism Protagorean relativism, or maybe global relativism. So roughly, this is the idea that there is no such thing as an objective measure of truth that is independent of us. So there is no way to adjudicate between your beliefs and anyone else's beliefs, right? So for example, Jane says that global temperatures are rising due to greenhouse gas emissions. And Jack says that current warming trends are just part of the natural order of things and that greenhouse gas emissions just have a negligible contribution to whatever uptick there is in global temperatures. Now, the relativist comes along, Protagoras comes along and says, well, there's really no truth of the matter here either way. Jane has her perspective and Jack has his. Jane's truth is her truth and Jack's truth is his truth. But there's no, <laughs> there's nothing out there um, that could settle who has the better of belief amongst Jane and Jack. Now, we have to be a little bit careful when we describe this because relativism is not just disagreement. We all know that people disagree about global warming. Um, so relativism can't just be reduced to the claim that we cannot be certain, right, about either Jack's or Jane's beliefs. It's not the claim that the evidence is indeterminate in this case, although it could be. But relativism is a much stronger claim. It is the claim that each belief is equally true or equally good qua belief, right? And behind this idea is a commitment to thinking that all we can say is that the world is as it appears to Jane and the world is also as it appears to Jack, right? But these alternative realities um, Jane's reality and Jack's reality, they needn't, we needn't be committed to thinking that they converge upon a single thing that we might just call reality. And when they don't converge, right, there's no way to discriminate <laughs> between whatever the discrepancy is. Now, I think this view is obviously sophistical. Um, so I basically think that it's self-refuting. So suppose that you go to study under Protagoras 
and he tells you all about relativism. So Protagoras is a sophist, which means that he charges money for his teachings. Um, Plato hated the sophists. Uh, Plato hated the sophists because they didn't care about the truth. Um, but suppose that you go to study under Protagoras and he tells you about his relativism. You have to ask yourself why he's telling you this. Presumably, he's trying to teach you something, right? If he did not think he had a truth to share with you, why would he be teaching at all? What would be the point of teaching? There are other ways to make your money besides peddling wisdom. So it is obvious that whether he admits it or not, Protagoras thinks that his relativism is true and not just simply for him, but to whomever he's teaching his doctrine, right? You go to Protagoras to be enlightened. Um, and he has to think this, right? Otherwise, believing in, asserting, and teaching relativism to students become pointless and absurd exercises. It's unclear why anyone would go in for this form of exchange. So I think this, this theory is self-refuting because the content of the theory is at odds with the nature and purpose of theorizing, right? The nature and purpose of theorizing is putting something forward as true, as something that other right-thinking people ought to believe, and insofar as they don't believe it, they will marshal evidence and arguments right, against it, and then you can either improve your theory or give it up. But there's really no point to theorizing outside of this framework. So according to global relativism, everyone's beliefs are true, but in a private sense. But now we can see that the idea of a private truth or of just having your own personal truth is kind of nonsense, right? Because to make a judgment or form a belief or to assert something is really to do something that's essentially public. Because even if I never share my belief, it still has an essentially public character. Because again, belief makes a claim about the way things are, about what is the case. And that is a very public affair. So in judging, asserting, or believing, I am actually holding myself accountable to the world, to reality, which is not only publicly accessible, but actually shared with other human persons. Therefore, if you say you believe that there is no absolute truth, no way that things really are, this amounts to saying that you don't believe in belief. But of course, to say that you believe that there is no belief is to have a belief about belief and to take it to be true. So, the relativist cannot help but assert his relativism to others, and in so doing, he cannot help but take it to be true. In putting forward any proposition, we make ourselves accountable to other people and to reality. And this is something that the global relativist cannot cannot affirm. So that's global relativism, and I think actually it turns out very few people will want to be global relativists. Um, what you will find much more frequently, especially if you teach moral philosophy, which is what I do most of the time, um, you will come across what I call partial relativism. So this is the idea that you know, maybe you believe that there are some truths. For example, 
maybe you believe there are scientific truths because you believe that the scientific method is a method that yields true propositions. So then when you're at IU, you trust that what you read in your chemistry and your physics and your biology textbooks are true, or at least that there is some reality that can determine whether the claims in your books are true or false, but that there is no absolute truth to be found in a book on ethics or politics or aesthetics or religion. That is, one could think that there are truth makers relative to some domains of inquiry and no truth makers relative to others. In the latter sorts of domains, all perspectives are again equally valid because nothing objective exists to adjudicate between rival claims within those domains of inquiry. And here again, you will very likely encounter this in an ethics class or a religion class, right? Um, and it's much more frowned upon to assert, you know, that you think your religion is, is actually the true one, um, or that you think that your moral code is the true one. And the reason why that's kind of frowned upon is because that implies that other people in the room who are living a different way or worshiping in a different way um, are operating under some kind of false, uh, some kind of false beliefs. Um, okay, so this kind of view isn't um, is obviously self-refuting as global relativism, but that doesn't mean that it's any good, and that doesn't mean that we need to accept it. And I'm going to kind of hone in on moral relativism in particular because that I think is the most salient. But before I talk about what moral relativism is, I want to stave off confusion by saying what it's not, right? And one thing that it's not is just skepticism, right? So you could be a moral skeptic, and the moral skeptic doubts claims, anyone's claims, really, uh, to possess moral knowledge, right? So for example, if you've ever read any of Plato's dialogues, you will know that Socrates confronts many moral skeptics, right? Um, so suppose that Socrates says that justice benefits its possessor. This is, in fact, something Socrates says, uh, most famously in The Republic. Now, the moral skeptic doubts, right, Socrates' claim to knowledge. And that may just mean that he thinks all moral judgments are uncertain, or he may simply deny that morality has anything to do with knowledge. Right? He may just think that morality is um, all about power um, or will to power, or um, he may think that it's all about appetite somehow, especially fear. Um, but the moral relativist is not a skeptic, right? Because the relativist does actually want to allow for moral truth. She just, again, makes moral truth personal or private, right? So, for example, Lucy thinks that the proposition murder is bad is true, whereas Linus thinks that it's false. Both are true, according to the relativist. That is to say, the posture is true from the relative different first-person perspectives of Lucy and Linus. And that, again, is all that anybody has to go on. 
Now, one thing that is weird about this point of view is that it can, in principle, have no practical upshot. Because as soon as you try to make it practical, as soon as you try to live your moral relativism, um, you get caught in a kind of performative contradiction, right? So suppose that you happen upon a man who is trying to murder someone. Well, if you are a moral relativist, then you cannot try to stop him, right? Because you have no ground on which to do so. After all, you are committed to the belief that this man's value judgments are true for him, right? He's murdering someone, so presumably he doesn't think it's all that bad. Um, and his beliefs are equally as good as your own. Um, and, you know, who knows what this guy's beliefs are? Maybe he thinks that murdering expresses his will to power. Or maybe he thinks he is solving the problem of global warming by just getting rid of some humans. Let us suppose that you are a decent person and you are horrified by this murder that you happen upon. However, if you are a relativist, you have undermined any ground you might have otherwise had to intervene with Czech's behavior. Because if you are a committed ethical relativist, you cannot impose your belief or your truth on someone else because they have their belief and their truth. At best, you can say that what he does is upsetting you, but what are the odds that the murderer will care about your feelings? That's pretty much all that you'll have. All this is to say that the ethical relativist can only be a relativist in theory, but not practice. And that's pretty weird because we typically think our ethical beliefs are supposed to translate into action. They are supposed to be practical, right? And it looks like the only time that this is possible is when my actions only concern me because only then would I not be imposing on anyone else and trying to realize my own private vision, right? Of what I think is good. But good luck identifying what actions those are, namely those actions that only affect you. Most of what we do either directly involves others or affects others in fairly obvious ways. So the point about the practicality of judgments about the good, I think is actually very important. So I've already argued that we cannot escape making judgments, we can't escape making beliefs or assertions, as creatures with an intellect, this is kind of our play, like we have to do this. But we're not merely knowers, we are also actors. And so we have to deliberate from a first person perspective, not only about what to believe, but also about what to do. But just as the question about what to believe is transparent to the question about what is true, so also the question about what to do is transparent to the question about what is good. And when we choose some action in some circumstances, we choose it because we think it is in some sense good. Maybe it's pleasant, or maybe we think it fits our character, or maybe we think it is instrumentally useful to the attainment of some other good, which we are also trying to secure. Alternatively, we choose some action because we think it avoids some evil. But again, avoiding evil is just a way to maintain or to preserve your good. So just as the intellect orients us to the truth, the will, this capacity that we have to freely choose our actions, orients us to the good. But nobody wants to choose what is merely apparently good. People want things 
that are really and truly good for them. And if they find out, if they discover that it's not really and truly good for them, but only apparently good, they will correct course. Now, according to Aquinas's theory of vice, even the most vicious person you can imagine is after real human goods. So you can think about a very greedy man. He's after wealth. Wealth is a real human good, right? It's just that the greedy man wants too much of it. The lustful man is after sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure is a real human good. It's just the lustful man wants it inordinately in a way that only sort of redounds to himself. So from within the first person perspective of human experience, of human choice, moral relativism looks like it is a denial of human nature. And this is because the moral relativist holds that there is no such thing as objective goods for humans to seek and their choices, true goods as opposed to merely apparent goods. But then choice itself starts to look impossible. For if choice isn't about getting onto real goods, why do we choose anything at all? The very act of choice seems to depend on this. And one of the lessons here is that our beliefs about what is good are not inert. They aren't. As soon as you have a judgment or a perception that something is good, that something is desirable, that it's incredible, you have this motion towards it. Um, you have a kind of prima facie appetitive reaction or response. And that just shows that the intellect and the will are very closely related, which is something that I think pretty much every decent Catholic theologian I've ever read uh, teaches, but especially Thomas Aquinas. Um, so the fact that ethical relativism is deeply impractical and implausible certainly undercuts the main motivation for adopting it in the first place. If we adopted relativism, moral relativism, because we are practically committed to advancing values like freedom, equality, and tolerance, we have now found ourselves in the awkward position of being unable to advocate effectively, if at all, on behalf of our own lives and equally unable to realize our most basic values as relativists, right? Because as soon as we tell someone else that they should be tolerant, we are again contradicting ourselves. If tolerance, freedom, and equality are really goods, then they're truly goods. And things that are really and truly good ought to be realized in both our individual and our collective actions. We ought to arrange our lives and our societies so that we can secure and maintain these goods. But again, relativism, at least insofar as it's being internally consistent, will block this. And once you see this, again, I think it starts to become pretty unappealing as a life posture. Now, many people come to affirm moral relativism because there's so much moral disagreement both within a culture and across cultures. Certainly, I don't need to tell you that within our own country, there is widespread disagreement about moral and political matters. You know that. But you know, this disagreement isn't really recent either. Certainly, the Jews and the Romans profoundly disagreed about how to live, about what was okay and what wasn't. Disagreement uh, is a stable feature of human life and society. And so I think that um, it's useful 
when thinking about relativism to make a distinction between moral and cultural relativism. And now I want to talk a little bit about the cultural relativist. So the cultural relativist does not think that truth is private in the same way that the moral relativist does. It is not the case that to each individual is his own, but rather to each culture is his own, right? So now you have truth relative to cultures. Now, a version of cultural relativism quite famously was put forward in 1947 by the American Anthropological Association, and this was in response to the UN Declaration of the Universal Rights of Man. So the AAA, the anthropologists, they were against a universal declaration of the rights of man, and they were against it on relativist grounds. They argued that moral values are relative to cultures, and so there is no way of showing that the values or customs of one culture are superior to any other culture. And if that is true, then it is obviously a mistake for Western political institutions to impose their ideology of human rights on other nations. The anthropologists dared to pose the following question. How can the proposed declaration, they asked, be applicable to all human beings? and not be a statement of rights conceived only in terms of the values now prevalent in the countries of Western Europe and America. So they worried, right, that a declaration of human rights, a universal declaration of human rights that were supposed to be binding on all human beings and all human societies, they worried that it was just colonialism masquerading itself as universal, universal justice. It was the ideology of the white man's burden all over again, just dressed up uh, in different language. So instead of declaring a regime of universal rights that all cultures had to respect, the anthropologists argued instead for respect for differences between cultures, which is validated by the scientific fact that no technique of qualitatively evaluating cultures has yet been discovered. So there's no scientific measure. So the anthropologists also claimed explicitly, and again, this is a quote from their statement, standards and values are relative to the culture from which they derive so that any attempt to formulate postulates that grow out of the beliefs or moral codes of one culture must to that extent detract from the applicability of any declaration of human rights to mankind as a whole, right? So they are cutting across purposes here. So here we have a very familiar refrain to respect diversity rather than interfere and impose because moral and political standards are relative to cultures and to fail to recognize this is to evince a kind of crude parochialism. This doesn't have to assume, by the way, that other cultures have to respect diversity as well, right? There's, there's plainly no, no way to assume that. And so it needn't be self-defeating. It just says that within our Western culture, we do respect diversity and we care about tolerance. Um, and so we should not continue on the sad and sorry legacy of colonialism. Now, this may mean that women continue to be continue to be treated inferior to men and denied political rights, education, 
and control over what happens to their bodies, that honor killings may continue, or any number of other things that look like atrocities from our Western point of view. And the appeal to science in this statement is quite striking. For just as there is no scientific way to determine ethical value, there is also no scientific way to determine that science is the measure of all knowledge, including political knowledge, the knowledge of value, right? That's just, that's just an assumption made by the anthropologists, right? If we don't have scientific knowledge of it, there is no knowledge. Um, that would be, well, that would be a kind of partial relativism, I suppose, on their part, but an unargued for one. Okay, so in a wonderful essay titled Trying Out One's New Sword that I often teach to undergraduates, Mary Midgley, who is a philosopher, describes the custom of samurai warriors in medieval Japan. And this is her description of the custom. There is a verb in classical Japanese, which means to try out one's new sword on a chance wayfarer. I can't pronounce this Japanese word, but the English translation of it literally means crossroads cut. A samurai sword had to be tried out because if it was to work properly, it had to slice through someone at a single blow from the shoulder to the opposite flank. Otherwise, the warrior bungled his stroke. This could injure his honor, offend his ancestors, and even let down his emperor. So tests were needed and wayfarers had to be expanded, expended. Any wayfarer would do. Now, what are we to make of such a cultural practice? The sort of moral isolationism suggested by the anthropologists, I think won't do, but why not? Well, for one thing, I think it makes learning from other cultures very difficult because if I cannot censor another culture, I also cannot praise it for that too would be to make a moral judgment about it, which I've blocked myself from doing. If I were seriously to engage this practice and the culture in which the practice is actually intelligible, I will have to see what good hangs on it for this political community. Who actually benefits from this practice? What is lost if the practice is abandoned in the culture? How do the non-samurai feel about this practice? The chance wayfarers, are they really happy to die? Does consent matter to the practice? What is the value of human life in such a culture? In order to enter into genuine exchange with another culture, we have to be able to say what we find good and what we find bad in it. And the interlocutor has to do the same. If we cannot do this, and cultural relativism makes it very difficult, if not impossible to do this, then we have no hope of converging on a shared worldview. And we have no hope, right, of anything like moral progress. We simply are condemned to live apart from one another in our own diverse separate spheres of value. But why should we assume that this political arrangement is the best one? What values are at stake in that political choice? Again, here we find we will simply have to make a value claim. We'll have to make a political judgment in which our political values will come to the foreground and be at stake. And it cannot be relative. All parties need to accept the values at stake. 
And I think also when you reflect on this kind of um, engagement with another culture, whether it's a culture that uh, is remote from us in history. So for example, until very recently in human history, slavery was an institution that was widely accepted and not just by Europeans. Um, how are we to think about that, to make sense of that? Um, I don't think that science is going to get us very far in that kind of practical political contemplation, moral contemplation. And so science is no substitute for political thinking, which is what the anthropologists are suggesting. So I want now finally to return to the earlier remarks that I made, or rather that I quoted then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger as making about the dictatorship of relativism. When all truth is relative, which means when there is no truth at all, a vacuum is created. As previously mentioned, we all have beliefs and we all have choices to make, both personal and our private lives and political choices that we make as cities and states and nations. In absence of any public criteria of truth, which can determine whether our beliefs or choices are good or bad, some beliefs and some choices will still have to be made. Someone will prevail. This is inevitable because we are humans and we have to live in society and we have to create laws. So some ideas have to win out and some values have to be pursued over others. And if we don't have objective measures of truth, and if we don't have practices of dialogue and inquiry that are ordered around trying to get at that truth, then all we have is will to power. So freedom and equality really do depend on truth. They really do depend on some publicly accessible measure. And so we were wrong to think that relativism is the true friend of democracy and equality. Quite the contrary, I believe it's its enemy because truth helps us to transcend ourselves and to live in right relationships with others. Without truth, we have no choice but to collapse into ourselves, into our kind of own private world of perception and desire. And then it really does become all about our own egos, just as uh, Cardinal Ratzinger suggested. So this brings us to the other great danger of neglecting truth and embracing relativism. And this other danger is cynicism, alienation, and detached irony. So um, someone that I think is, is actually extremely insightful about this uh, is uh, the writer David Foster Wallace. I don't know if I, there are any Foster Wallace fans in here, um, but I am, um, I'm an enormous fan of his writing and his fiction. And David Foster Wallace rightly diagnosed this kind of self-referential and ultimately alienated condition, which he thought was basically the condition of us Gen Xers, um, as very stifling and oppressive, as offering us no solutions, as leaving us focused only on ourselves, and even then in an incredibly detached and cynical way. 
Um, so David Foster Wallace writes a lot about irony, um, and he does not think it's good. Um, okay. So I hope that I have convinced you that seeking the truth is not only possible, but actually necessary in human life, and that seeking the truth is doing some kind of self-transcendent thing, right? Going beyond oneself um, in order to be held accountable to reality and thereby being held accountable to other people. But I want to say something here at the end, and this is my final remark, I promise. Um, about why this really matters in the context of university study, right? So one thing that I do quite a lot lately is I debate college presidents about what the purpose of a university education is for. And my response is that it's for seeking the truth. And um, most college presidents that I talk to are extremely uncomfortable with that proposition. They are extremely uncomfortable that what we are doing when we study at the university is seeking truth. Um, and so they will fall back on something else. You know, we're um, trying to create a just society or, um, I don't know, we're trying to make money. <laughs> um, uh, they don't usually say that, but I honestly think that's what it boils down to in a lot of cases. But, um, you know, and, and I think that... Um, <laughs> Universities need to be committed to their original mission of uh, being about free inquiry, right? Free inquiry into the truth. Um, because if we lose that, I think we absolutely lose the idea that what we're doing is higher learning, right? Higher learning should not just mean higher costs. Higher learning should mean that it matches our highest aspirations, the highest aspirations of the human person and the human heart. And that highest aspiration actually is for the truth. And this is what the church in fact teaches. This is what St. Thomas teaches, that happiness, actually perfect happiness, perfect human fulfillment is the perfection of our intellect, is when we possess the fullness of truth and the beatific vision. And university study, when done properly, is helping you get towards that. As you were speaking about um, truth as being or having a public character, mm -hmm. I was reminded of reading, I don't know, some 30 or 35 years ago, Saul Kripke's work. <laughs> Kripke. Wow, well, yeah. Right? That's right. Words are public languages. But to rule again, right? The mm -hmm. language would have to be public. Therefore, sentences, dialogues, narratives, and global discourses must always be public. Yep. So as a consequence, he didn't really think that people could have their own truth. I mean, that, that sort of fits in, doesn't it? Well, I mean, he worked on logic. Mm -hmm. So Saul Kripke is an American philosopher um, who is from Omaha, Nebraska, and is famous for... Um, doing really groundbreaking work in logic when he was 15. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if, if there's no, you know, the, the rules of logic are rules of truth preservation and they're formal. And so yes, Kripke is very committed to the truth because without it, there are no formal rules of thinking. There is no, there are no rules for preserving truth in arguments. Um, and so, you know, his, his, his most groundbreaking stuff would have been nonsense. 
Um, but you won't find you won't find a lot of relativists in philosophy. Um, and I find that interesting because you will find a lot of relativists in the university, but you won't find a very many in philosophy departments, at least not philosophy departments that are coming out of a strong tradition of logic um, because, you know, the, the, the whole conceit, right, is that the philosopher is um, trying to get to the truth through a certain method of reasoning, right, that is rule-guided, um, and rules cannot be private. Right? Rules of math cannot be private. Rules of logic cannot be private. Rules of law cannot be private. Right, Just as the meaning of a word cannot be private. Um, there is no such thing as private meaning. Um, and yeah, so Kripke is definitely not a relativist. And I'm delighted that you made that connection. <laughs> so I have a friend who has said that he was kind of a nihilist. Mm -hmm. He said that he didn't think that anything had an inherent um, purpose or like meaning. So mm -hmm. like life and the world and the universe. And then he said that he turned more to existentialism. And now he thinks that still nothing has inherent meaning or purpose, but you can like create your own purpose for your life or give me yeah. to it. Yeah. How would you respond to that? Well, that's Sartre's view. Um, um, I mean, I, th I think it's wrong. <laughs> I think it doesn't work. Um, I think it's enormously appealing to teenagers who are very angst-ridden to begin with. And that includes myself. I was a very angst-ridden teen. Um, I'm not immune from my own humanity. Um, and I think that um, it's the kind of view that people tend to grow out of, but you can help people grow out of it. And that is by um, trying to get them to reflect on Sartre's basic commitment, which is his commitment that existence is prior to essence, right? So Sartre thinks that the human person is like sort of a nothing until he makes himself something. And I think that some pretty casual reflection on human life uh, shows that to be false, right? Um, actually, human nature is pretty stable over time. <laughs> uh, we've, we've studied it across cultures, across historical time periods. Um, and we've studied it theologically, we've studied it philosophically, uh, we've made a lot of art about it, we've studied it empirically, and I think it just turns out not to be true that uh, we just kind of make ourselves all the way down. So for example, the arguments that I gave about our intellect and our will and sort of these things being beyond choice, um, our embodiment is beyond choice. I mean, there are just like givens of human nature that we all have to navigate. And Sartre's philosophy uh, doesn't recognize that. And so I, I think it's pretty bogus um, because it 
because it because it just sort of seems like a fact, right? Um, and so I think his notion of freedom uh, is is a wrong one because it's a notion of freedom that is too open ended. Um, of course, I do think that human beings are free, but I think we're free to re- I think that we're free within the confines of our of our nature. And our nature is kind of a given stable thing. Um, and that is why, for instance, humans are able to understand one another, <laughs> uh, despite vast cultural differences and so on. Uh, the truth is you can read ancient literature. Uh, you can read Homer and recognize yourself. And that's pretty astonishing. That's pretty astonishing. <laughs>